All right, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 12. We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. The verses will be on your screen. However, I encourage you to consider using a paper Bible. There are very limited ways that we can be interactive. And one of them is actually holding your Bible. So I'd encourage you to keep that there. You know James is going to go to like 17 scriptures and it's be good to flip back and forth as he does that. So Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring to me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Landon. Well, good morning. My name is James Walden, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church, and it's my privilege to open scriptures with you this morning. Um, Last week, we looked at Jesus's first encounter here in Jerusalem with the leadership that represented the Sanhedrin, the highest authority in, in all of Judea, the highest court of the land. And having undercut their attempts to expose his lack of credentials and credible authorization from the powers that be in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin sends now its best and brightest in waves, in teams, to test Jesus, to stump the chump, or we used to say in our college ministry back at my previous church, to fry the friar when we'd bring in the senior pastor to be grilled by the students, or I suppose in Jesus's case, to mystify the Messiah, to confuse the Christ, and I'll stop now. What they want to do is they want to throw the dilemmas of the day, which their wisdom could not resolve, uh, at Jesus. Uh, Not just dilemmas of the day, but quandaries of the age. 
Um, and they hoped by thrusting these dilemmas upon Jesus that he would be impaled on the horn of these dilemmas. But they only found themselves impaled on this horn. And we're going to look at two of the three dilemmas or difficult questions they throw at Jesus uh, here in the temple today. The first one in regards political wisdom. How do we as the people of God relate to the state? How does the city of God relate to the city of man? And then there's a question regarding death and our hope in the face of death and this doctrine of resurrection. And then thirdly, as we'll see next week, there's a question about the law of Moses. What is the greatest commandment? It is a question of morality, of how to live, of good ethics. And what's so remarkable is that Jesus answers each one of these tests with such wisdom that even his opponents marvel. In verse 17, the Herodians and the Pharisees marvel at Jesus' response. You know you've done a mic drop when your opponents are like, wow, that was really good. Uh, even in verse 28, which we don't, we're not at yet, we'll get there next week, after Jesus' dispute with the Sadducees, uh, one of the scribes overhearing it thinks to himself, he answered that really well. <laughs> so even his opponents are wowed by his answers. And so Jesus here exposes the experts, or as the apostle Paul wrote, where is the sage? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of men in Jesus? Jesus is revealed to be the wisdom of God in the flesh. He's wiser than the philosophers, more profound than the theologians, more connected than the gurus, more centered than monks and mystics. He is sharper than any scientist or pundit wiser than any priest, pastor, prophet, imam, Buddha, Dalai Lama, sage, or scholar. God here doesn't just expose the world's folly, our folly in Jesus, but he also offers us this very wisdom to us as a gift. As Paul wrote, Jesus has become for us our wisdom. And this wisdom is not just for the age to come, for our hope beyond the grave, as critical as that is, but it's also wisdom for the age now, the present age. And we need this wisdom. We need sage wisdom politically. Uh, COVID-19 has stumped all of us. What do we do? Do we continue to quarantine to protect the most vulnerable? Or do we open up the economy so that the human costs that that entails won't increase beyond measure. We don't know. This is a novel virus, a novel pandemic that we've never faced. We need wisdom and we don't have it. We need wisdom regarding uh, courage in the face of death. If you're watching the numbers uh, on the news, every day the fatalities due to COVID-19 increase uh, by thousands. And it's sobering and, it, and we're forced to face our own mortality. How then will we encounter these realities? How then will we face death? If we face death without hope beyond the grave, when there is hope, we will have died disastrously. We will have died as fools. But on the other hand, as Paul said, if we die with a hope that proves untrue, we're the biggest fools of all and the most to be pitied. We need wisdom in facing our mortality. And we need wisdom on how to live. We need wisdom on morality. 
And so let's pray now that the Lord God, the source of wisdom in the face of Christ, would give us wisdom as we look into the word this morning and we encounter Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence through your word, the word who was made flesh, the word who is the eternal wisdom of God. Would we encounter you in all of your dread majesty, in all of your brilliance, and yet, Lord, you are humble and meek, and you've revealed that in Jesus, so that even we, even us here, can approach your throne through Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would gift us with wisdom this morning as we look into your word, as for all, everyone watching, Lord, sitting on our couches, that you would give us wisdom now, that your spirit would be present when we cannot be present together in the flesh. And you would reveal to us wonderful things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the opening verse here of our passage, verse uh, 13, this says they, meaning the Sanhedrin, sent two cohorts or two groups to stump Jesus. Uh, the Herodians on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other, which is a bit of a strange combination as we'll see. And it says their intent is to trap Jesus, literally to trap him with words. They were going to pose a dilemma for which there's a no right answer, no answer that will win Jesus over to anyone. In other words, uh, an answer that was controversial no matter what side you landed on. And they butter Jesus up, although they know they can't butter him up because it's a setup. There's like almost humorous, lengthy flattery here. Oh, Rabbi, we know you don't care what any man thinks. You tell it like it is. You are not afraid of any man's opinion. So surely you won't shrink from answering this question the way you did the, the last question in the temple. Surely you're, you're not afraid of what people will think. And so they pose this dilemma regarding paying taxes to Caesar. Is it lawful? Moses says nothing about giving money, giving tribute to a pagan emperor. So should we do this? And on the one hand, if Jesus said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he would find himself at odds on the one hand with the people, the crowds that were surrounding him. You see, they were, understandably so, not really excited about Roman occupation in their land. And you had the Pharisees there who represented the people. They were the popular preachers and Bible teachers of the day and held that view. They were not fans of the Roman Empire. They sort of saw it as God's discipline and they were gonna take their lickings and then move on. But they were quite ready to move on. Further to the right would have been the Zealots. The Zealots were the guys with the flags don't tread on me and the... the uh, automatic assault rifles they brought into City Hall, that would be the zealots. They were done with the Roman Empire. It was an intrusion upon Zion, God's land, and the sooner they got off, the better, and by any means, necessary. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay, pay these, this tribute to Caesar, immediately he'd be viewed as pro-Rome, and he would have maybe a riot on his hands. On the other hand, you have the Sadducees, who weren't big complainers of Rome because it served them well. But even further to the left, you had the Herodians. 
So here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are coming together to stump Jesus. This was a bipartisan effort. And so the Herodians liked Rome quite a bit because they propped up the Herodian dynasty from which they benefited. So they were very pro-Rome. They weren't about to bite the hand that fed them. So if he were to say, no, don't pay taxes, Immediately, they would report Jesus to the authorities as an insurrectionist, as a leader fomenting a revolt among the people. So you see the trap Jesus is in. But Jesus' response is brilliant. He does give him a straight answer. He says, why are you trying to test me? (laughs) He exposes them immediately. But then he goes on to give a brilliant answer, very much like a good rabbi. He says, give me a denarius. And uh, what I want you to do is I want you to pull out a dollar bill. Pull out a dollar bill. We won't do the denarius quite yet. We want to follow Jesus' example here. Uh, and I want you to take a dollar bill. If, even if you're by yourself at home, take it out. And then I want you to put that in an envelope and mail it to me. I'm just kidding. I just figured while I'm a televangelist, you know, I got to say that at least once. But I do really want you to pull out a dollar bill. And on it, you'll see, like the denarius, you'll see the head of a leader. In this case, George Washington, the first president of the United States. And there in bold, uh, all caps, the name of our nation, the United States of America. On the flip side are these emblems of our power, our sovereignty, and our divine favor. You'll see the eagle, which was also the Roman symbol. I don't think you can call them mascots. That would be, that'd be odd. Like the Cold War was eagles versus the bears. Uh, but you have the eagle there. In one hand, he's holding an olive branch. And that's saying, we as a nation are prepared for peace. We are peace-loving people. We seek peace. We're ready for peace. And the other set of talons, there's 13 arrows saying, but if you don't want peace, we're ready for war. In other words, we're very quiet, but we carry a big stick. On the other side, the other emblem, there's a pyramid, 13 stacks representing 13 colonies originally. And there above the the eyes, the all-seeing eye of providence, And in the Latin, it says above that, he favors our endeavors. God favors our endeavors in this American experiment. And underneath, there's a a ribbon, kind of a banner. And in that banner, there's Latin again. And the Latin says, uh, a new order for the ages. What we're doing in this American experiment is a new order and God has favored us. We are powerful, we are benevolent, and we have God's favor on us. Coinage hasn't changed a whole lot through the centuries. And so the coin that Jesus would have been given uh, is on the screen. It's, It's the denarius. And there's an image of Tiberius Caesar, the current Caesar. And in Latin, on the backside, by the way, there's a picture of a woman reclining. Some think that's his wife. Others think it's a goddess. It's a picture of fertility, a picture of fruitfulness and, and flourishing. But with Caesar's head, there's a title there in Latin. And it says essentially this, Tiberius Caesar, divine son of Augustus Caesar. You see, not only is he the present ruler, and this is an emblem of his authority, his sovereignty. When Jesus asks whose image is on it, they have to say it. Even the, even the Pharisees who resented Rome had to go, Caesar. It was a reminder of who's in control, who is in power. It was an emblem of power and sovereignty. But also there's a divine claim made here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pagan claim. Caesar claims to be a divine son. This was approved by the Roman government that he, indeed he was divine. 
a God. They're in the temple and all of them had these little graven images of a pagan God in their pockets. How ironic is it that Jesus says, I don't have one of these, do y'all? And they do, and they have to produce it. Well, actually, we do have one of these. And then Jesus asks the, the, the very simple question. The question is profound because it's both plain, a simple, irresistible logic, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. But it's also incredibly ambiguous because it begs the question, what does, what does belong to Caesar exactly and what all belongs to God? Requiring further reflection on our part, further thought. And so with that said, Let's look at how Jesus' answer counters the anarchists, the crowd's spirit and disposition, and certainly the zealots who were ready to cast off uh, the yoke of Rome. At the very least, Jesus is saying here that Caesar has a legitimate place in the lives of God's people, that he has a proper domain in God's providence, a sphere of sovereignty, if you like, that in God's order of things. And how this was understood by the early church is very telling. How uh, we are to read what Jesus means here by saying these things. In fact, Jesus, when he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, uses a rare word that means literally pay back or pay their due. It occurs only here in the story of Jesus's encounter about taxes in all three gospels. And then it occurs once in Revelation where it says pay back Babylon for all her crimes against humanity. And then one other place, it's in Romans 13. That's on the screen, I wanna read that. But this gives us a glimpse as to how the apostles understood uh, what our relationship to governing authorities, even pagan emperors. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, right? But to bad, really? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He's talking about a pagan empire here. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, what are we going to say here? Let me just pause. I know what some of you are thinking. Paul's naive. Does he really think that governments represent righteousness, that they, in, that they instilled righteous rule of law? Does he not know abuse of power? Well, let's ask, what does Paul know about the abuse of power? This is a man who spent a lot of time in jail, falsely accused. This is a man who would lose literally his head by the Roman authorities. Paul's not naive here. Paul is not uh, unnuanced in his understanding of gov Roman government. He goes on, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of, a go of God attending to this very thing. In other words, you pay taxes because you, you, you should. You take advantage of roads, police protection, military protection, uh, 
public education, all you, you avail yourself of these things every day. You owe this. The authorities are ministers of, a God, ministers of God attending to this very thing. Therefore, pay to all what is owed to them. And there that word, pay to all, is the same word Jesus used, render unto Caesar. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor. It's not just what we do outwardly in giving away money, it's also inwardly that we give honor and respect to the offices of governing authorities. This is exactly what the apostle Peter, who was a partner with Mark in ministry, this is exactly how he understands Jesus' teachings as well. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to be to the emperor as supreme or to governors that he sends to punish evil and praise good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people who are claiming that Christians were these outsiders, these anti-citizens, these non-contributors to the common good. No, you'll be the best citizens because you are so respectful and obedient and submissive. This is what Peter says. This is the will of God that you would silence such ignorance. Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. And what does that mean? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor Nero? Yes. This is how the early church after the apostles understood it. Listen to what Justin Martyr writes to a critic of Christianity questioning its validity in the second century. And everywhere, he writes, we more readily than anyone else endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by him. For at that time, some came to him, Jesus, and asked him if one ought to pay tribute to Caesar. He answered, tell me, whose image else does the coin bear? And they said, Caesar's. And again, he answered them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, praying that your kingly power be found to possess also sound judgment. So in other words, our loyalty to the state isn't merely something that we just perform outwardly. It's not just something we endure. It's just something that we actually actively support. And not merely in our performance of actions, but inwardly in our constant state of prayers as the subject of our prayers. Uh, the state and society is a matter of a Christian's inward energies and longings and concerns. Uh, Governor McMaster has asked the churches today to pray. And in a moment, Chris Eckert, one of our elders, will do that. We're going to honor the governor's request and pray for our state in the midst of this pandemic. But Jesus here qualifies the loyalty that we give to Caesar, but render unto God the things that belong to God. And here Jesus addresses the statist. And what do I mean by a statist? I mean simply someone who sees the state as sort of the center of a society, the, 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 the great power uh, at work economically, socially, to keep a culture afloat. It is, it is the savior of the people. It is a God. And Jesus here also 
relativizes Caesar's authority. If Caesar has a sphere of sovereignty, and he does, it reduces to a vanishing point. It collapses into this infinitesimally small point when we zoom out to look at the sphere of God's sovereignty in which exists this little tiny speck called the Roman Empire. God's sovereign reign is unlike Caesar's total and absolute Many commentators, in fact, suggest that the implication of Jesus' question, whose image is on that coin, be taken one step further. Whose image is on Caesar? In 1934, a group of German pastors and religious leaders in opposition to the growing Nazi regime, which was forcing its spidery fingers into the German church, and even putting up new officers, new ecclesiastical officers of the church, Führers in the church, uh, wrote this statement of declaration to separate themselves and and to note their disagreement with this development. And it's the Barman Declaration, and it's since become famous. But I want to read a section of this as it encapsulates this very succinctly. According to the Barman Declaration in 1934, we read this. Scripture tells us that by divine appointment, the state in this still unredeemed world in which also the church is situated has the task of maintaining justice and peace so far as human discernment and human ability makes this possible by means of the threat and use of force. So he's acknowledging exactly what Paul wrote, what Peter wrote. The church acknowledges with gratitude and reverence toward God the benefit of this, his appointment, the benefit of the state. But the church also draws attention to God's dominion in the German, to God's Reich. God's commandment, God's justice, and these, the responsibility of those who rule and those who are ruled. In other words, they, the rulers, as well as the ruled, are accountable themselves to God. It, the church, trusts and obeys the power of the word by which God upholds all things. We reject the false doctrine that beyond its special commission, the state should and could become the sole and total order of human life and so fulfill the vocation of the church as well. This is the Third Reich was taking over every aspect of the German people and they're pushing back, giving a voice for the church and for others as well. You ever wonder why in this day and age, politics has become so volatile that we can't even debate it. Like if you disagree, I can't even have a discussion with you. Like you have to be exiled, excommunicated. It's because politics has become our new religion. And what do you do when someone in your religion blasphemes your God? You have to excommunicate them. There's no dialogue. We have become statists in our absolute devotion to the state as the only hope whether it's for COVID-19 or it's for our economy, but the state is not our hope. God alone is our hope. And we must look on him and his total claim on us. If you wanna know when Jesus says, render to God what is God's, what all do I have to give? You don't have to look no further than back in chapter eight when he says, if anyone would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, everything. We owe God 
everything that we are, everything that we have, we don't give like 40% taxes or whatever your tax rate is. We give 100% of what we have to God. All of it is his. And when you pay taxes to Uncle Sam, we do it to the glory of God. And when you get the stimulus check from Uncle Sam, you receive that to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen. And when you vote in that private voting booth, did you know there's a, there's, if you might have forgotten, there's a presidential election coming up. Who are you going to vote for? That requires divine wisdom. But when you are in that voting booth, will you vote in, to the glory of God in service to him? In all these things, and whether we eat or drink, whether, whether we watch Netflix, whatever we do during this, this quarantine, we, do we do it all to the glory of God who has total claim on us and rightly so as our creator, as our judge, and in Jesus Christ as our savior? Well, lastly, we need to look at Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees, or what I'm going to call the skeptics, because the Sadducees were, if you will, to the left on these things. Uh, particularly regarding some of the, the honored doctrines of Judaism. They were more liberal in their take on these things. And so, uh, as Mark informs us, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which by this time was pretty standard belief among the Jews. Not only did not believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in any afterlife at all. In this regard, they're kind of like naturalists. Like once you're dead, you're dead, you're done. There's no more. And so they come to Jesus with a dilemma to expose what in their minds is the absurdity of the resurrection. They're like, the resurrection makes everyday life absurd. And let me give you an example. The seven brothers. One brother marries a brother, marries, his, marries a woman, and then he dies without having children. And according to the law of Moses, and when that happens, and there's another brother who's not married, he has an obligation to continue the family line for his brother to marry his brother's widow. And so with that law, this leveret law, uh, they go through this whole seven brothers process, which wasn't totally unheard of in the Jewish imagination. Although you would think by brother number four, he'd be like, you know what? I see a pattern here. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think I'm out. Uh, she put cyanide in your tea. What is she doing? Uh, but the seven brothers all marry her and they all die. And then finally she dies. And then the Sadducees with a kind of sneer say, and at the resurrection, whenever that happens, who is she going to be married to? See, it's total nonsense. And Jesus' response here is perhaps the most um, sharpest criticism uh, of all these encounters. Jesus says, you are sorely mistaken, aren't you? And then he ends it. He says it twice. You're, you're mistaken, aren't you? And then he ends. I mean, that's in verse uh, 20, 20, uh, 24. And then in verse 27, he repeats the same word, but he adds much to it. Not just you're mistaken. You are very mistaken. It's almost like Jesus said, you know, I said there were no stupid questions. I stand corrected. And, and, and there's two points here that they have problems with that Jesus points out. You don't understand the power of God and you don't know the scriptures. And these were Sadducees were theologians. I mean, they were trained in the scriptures. So Jesus here says, first and foremost, you don't understand the power of God regarding the nature of the resurrection. They thought the resurrection was like, 
You just come out from the dead like pet cemetery, like it's just earth 2.0. You just, you're, you're married again. He, then Jesus is like, it's not, this isn't like the zombie apocalypse. Like this is earth infinity point oh. It's a whole new, another level. There's no marriage. There's no need to fill the earth and populate it because there's no death. So there's no marriages. You don't understand the nature of God's power. It reminds me of Paul's answer of the skeptics in Corinth who said resurrection from the dead. That's ridiculous. What kind of grotesque body would come out of the ground? And Paul's like, you fools. You know, like, he's like, no, it's, like a, it's not like a zombie. It's, it's like a seed that goes in the ground and the seed has to die. And what happens? A tree comes out. Well, that's us. Don't you understand God's power? If you guys think that Genesis 1 isn't too much of a stretch that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing? Do you think God's raising the dead from their decomposed bodies, their scattered dust, is too hard for him? You don't understand the power of God. No, you will be raised. God is more than capable of raising the dead. And so you're sorely mistaken on the power of God. But you're also sorely mistaken on the scriptures. And what Jesus does is he, he quotes from Exodus, which is odd. Because if you want to prove the resurrection from what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you would want to go to like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel especially, or some of the Psalms. But he goes to Exodus. Why does he do that? Well, he's meeting the Sad Sadducees on their ground. Because the Sadducees rejected the authority of the rest of Scripture. They only accepted the authority of the first five books, what's called the Torah. And so Jesus goes there. He says, all right, well, we'll, we'll go there. Exodus, do you, and he, he asked this insulting question. Do you remember the burning bush? Have you read that one? Um, in that account, what does God declare his name to be to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus asks a very simple question. Is he the God of the dead? No, of course not. He's the God of living. God has named himself after his people. He's a covenant-making God who has forever bound himself to his people. If God bound himself to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's two options. Having died, not seeing God's promises fulfilled. Either God is a failure to produce the promises he's given these men and their wives and their children, or they will be raised again from the dead and see it. God has bound himself to their name. He doesn't say, I was the God of those people and now I'll be the God of Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have bound myself to be their God and the, they, my people, forever. God has joined us to, to, to himself as his people for as long as he shall live. And how long shall the Almighty live? Forever and ever, amen. How long then shall his people who are called by his eternal name live? Forever and ever, amen. Brothers and sisters, you will be raised from the dead. In fact, we all will. Every single one of us will be raised from the dead by the power of God. Some to a resurrection of judgment, but others to the resurrection of everlasting life. And this is our hope. This is our hope in all of this. We have eternal life given to us. And I want to pray for those of you who, who, who don't have this, don't know that hope. You're not able to cling to that hope because of your doubts and your fears. 
Those of you that are struggling to believe, I want to pray because Jesus, though he counters skeptics who are not interested in the truth, he is always gracious and kind to those who are seeking. And so let me pray for us that God would give us the gift of wisdom and the gift of eternal life. And if, you, if you'd like, follow me from home and just follow, pray with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence because you've invited us to. And in response to the wisdom of Jesus, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom during this pandemic as a people, as a church, as a city, as a nation. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom for salvation, for wisdom for eternal life. For those of us filled with doubts and fears, Lord Jesus, I pray this. We open our hearts to you. Lord, we believe Help our unbelief. You promise that if anyone confesses with our mouths and believes in our hearts that you have been raised from the dead, Jesus, that we have salvation. So Lord, we are claiming that now. We open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. Save us because you promised. Make us your people. And Lord, be our God, we pray in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.